Welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorites in indie cinema and genre film. I am your host, Lydia, and across the aisle is my co-host. Joseph, hi, hello, how are you? Hey. Yeah, so we'd start off at the top by saying that, because we need we remember this time, that the... <laughs> This episode is going to be about Antebellum, but as always, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff we've been watching and stuff happening in our life to begin the podcast out. So we'll move right to that. That was pretty good. Oh, God. How have you been feeling lately? Because I, I feel like we had, like last time we were talking about how we were feeling lonely, and now I feel like I'm, I'm just in a phase of like, I've doubled down on work, and so I'm kind of just like stressed. Oh my God. <laughs> Same. I look... Normally, I have an anxiety disorder. So some days, I'm bad. And some days, it's totally fine. And I'm, you know, neurotypical. But lately, I have been so amped up and like, just like stressed out, but in this weird, like, not in a I'm about to have a panic attack kind of way in a like, weirdly giddy like bracing kind of way where i'm Mm. like waiting for something terrible to happen and it's putting me on edge and it's very it's been very uncomfortable and like i don't know i just i feel very edgy i guess yeah i talk to people and i'm like so my feeling right now is i'm trying to be very habit centered like i'm so i moved into my new place and i'm just like okay what i can do is i'm in this new place i can build up good habits just get those good habits in Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've been focused on. And it's been like, it's good, but it's, I wish I had more to look forward to. I wish I had more Mm. excitement. Yeah, I get that. But it it has been working. So I I have been developing some good habits, exercise and diet, like dieting, quote unquote. (laughs) I say that I have like, (laughs) I I bought a bag of candy today and stuff like this. So I don't, you know, (laughs) but yeah, like I'm trying to build healthier life set and actually I, I don't know if I told you this but I was in part because I had a night where I brought out the tarot cards and I'm like you did tell yeah 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 I mean, help me, me figure out a path in life and I was just like and basically it, it focused on the body and I'm like mm. okay and what I was thinking about was that I could habits exercise things like this right. and those are things that I can like concretely progress in right now yeah I see what you mean and something and they've been things I've been putting off for like so many times because I'm always stressed. I always have something else going on. And I'm like, I really don't have an excuse right now. So I'm listening to them. And that's what it is. I probably like should do that. But I've gotten really into sandwiches lately. <laughs> My um, God. So. So that, that's hopeless. So that's pretty much where like I'm at. I'm at mentally is like I can make a sandwich and that's it's about all. I have the, like, emotional energy to deal with as far as taking care of myself. I'm like, I got showering, brushing my teeth, sandwiches. And I'm pretty content with that right now, so. The Cajun turkey I got is 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 pretty satisfying. Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> I actually ended up watching a lot of stuff 
recently as usual. Okay, I'm going to start with something, the thing I'd least want to talk about on the list. That's the way to go <laughs> with the thing that you don't care about. Um, but I've been watching Superstore on Netflix. I don't even know what that is. Oh, well, yeah, it's, so it's, it's not a Netflix original. It's a show that just Netflix acquired recently and was advertised to me. But it's about workers at a fake Superstore, basically Walmart, called Cloud9. And okay. so a guy drops out of a guy who's played by Ben Feldman, done my research this time, who was in Silicon Valley. At okay, thank you. Not, he's not in much else. Plays this business school dropout, 30-ish years old, at this Cloud9, this Walmart substitute, and meets there America Ferreira from Ugly Betty. And she is looking unbelievably okay. cool and good in this show, which is an amazing like move for her career. And I love that because I loved Ugly Betty. Um, for like season one ish, two ish, it had like a fun flavor, and then the plots just didn't go anywhere for me. I never, I don't, I never got into Ugly Betty, and it's like, I mean, I feel like it's the same reason why, like, I recognize why people love Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, and I, I love enjoy Devil Wears Prada. aspects of it, but I just can't get as invested in it, and. I mean, I think a lot of it is to do with, like, she starts off, she's supposed to be this homely, ugly person. And I know Ugly Betty is, like, they've, you know, uglied her up more. Mm -hmm. But, like, in Devil Wears Prada, Anne Hathaway is supposed to be, like, so unattractive because she's a size six and wears, like, sweaters from the fucking Gap. And it's, like, it's Anne Hathaway. Yeah, it's much dumber in that one. Jesus. They don't even, like, try to make her look bad, really. And it really, it's just, like, wear expensive, like... Oh, absurdly expensive clothing that you can't actually afford and lose as much weight as possible and that's how you're beautiful and there's like I don't love that honestly this section's not gonna be long because basically I've, it's been my comfort show it's just it's for me it's a good substitute for Shit's Creek it's very found family every character you fall in love with like the whole cast of characters and they learn to love each other as the show goes on right it's just nice to have shows like that sometimes because I have trouble rewatching shows. Like I can only do it like once or twice, even for shows of this type. I love a good rewatch. So I'm glad to get a new one. Yeah. I mean, it sounds interesting. It sounds like something that might be fun to watch that might make me like smile, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I've just, I've needed like comfort shows and maybe that would work for me, but I've had a hard time getting into anything new, despite the fact that there are two new things on my on my list that I've watched but they're all one season you know so it's like it's right. not as big of an investment I don't know I have too much apathy going on right now <laughs> yeah what's some of the okay. new stuff can seen? I yeah can, what's one of my new ones yeah one of my new ones um I watched Flack which is Oh, I saw that. recently acquired by Amazon Prime. Yeah. I didn't look into it. What's it about? Their advertising worked really well for me because I had zero understanding of what the fuck this show was about, but I just kept seeing ads for it and I was like, I'm putting this on. But Flack is basically just about a PR agency and specifically one like PR agent slash fixer who's played by Anna Paquin. Okay. Okay. From True Blood. And it's, it takes, it's in Britain. It's a British show. It was created by the BBC. Uh, so it's only six episodes, which, you know, very Sherlock type thing. Very easy mm-hmm. to get through. Okay. My, my next pick will, will connect to this so well. I'm, I'm interested. This will be interesting. 
Yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. It has, I'm trying to figure out what kind of flavor it has that can relate to like other shows that we've watched, but there's something about the dynamic of these women that I think will work really well for you in the same way that something like Flight Attendant worked well for Mm. you because of the female characters in it. It's very like snarky and snipey. um, And I think in a lot of ways, I feel like it works well for me because I work in a corporate job and it's very like, even though it's the entertainment industry, it's very corporate focused. And there are some things that are heightened or a little bit more ridiculous than what I deal with in marketing, um, where, you know, you're dealing with celebrities, you're dealing with fixing a lot of problems like coke addictions and criminal histories and botched plastic surgery. But there's a certain like, anxiety and hecticness uh, to being like, late 20s, early 30s, career focused woman trying to create work life balance when you have such an exceedingly and disproportionately demanding job. So she has these relationships like she has her sister, her brother in law, her boyfriend, but all of her real mainstay relationships that she has like any kind of genuine connection with are her coworkers. And a lot of those relationships are relatively toxic, but she's pretty toxic. So it Mm. it works really well. They're able to play off each other. They're able to support each other. Whereas in her day-to-day life, everybody has a much greater work-life balance, uh, a much less toxic work environment and much less toxic habits so they see her and and she feels very damaging to them and she she can't right. figure out how to flip out of work mode to not damage her like regular day-to-day loved ones lives so it's 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 really interesting it's got some of your like mainstay british actors that like your hey it's that guys that you'll mm. absolutely recognize in every episode but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it's really good. It has a flea bag kind of energy to it, I feel like, is the, is the show that I can think of that relates. Mm. Well, that's a way to sell it to me. <laughs> I, I would say they're, they're quite a bit more vicious mm. um, and visceral than flea bag. Like there's a lot, this is intriguing. There's a lot yeah. more heartwarming energy to flea bag, I find. There's, there's a relatableness, there's yes. an apathy, um, and there's still a lot of kindness, even though she's sort of a fuck up. Whereas in Flack, it's it's much more cutthroat. Yeah, I just want to say my selling point on Fleet is just like on a second watch through, it's like the characterization, like the characters themselves are so deep. They're so real feeling. And I think that's one of the things that can elevate a piece of media yeah. to like true yeah. great status. And I mean, look, there there's some things that maybe are unbelievable to me because I work in marketing and not PR, but I mean for salespeople and uh, finance people, there's there's an energy about the way they go out and party, right. the drinking, the drugs, that kind of thing that I I recognize just working in a corporate world, even though it's yeah. it's not something that myself and my coworkers experience on a day to day basis. And the interactions between the coworkers, the sniping and the snark, even though they love each other and support each other, is very relatable to me. Just working kind of in a mm-hmm. corporate world. A lot of great banter, and there's just, like, there's characters that even though you know they're terrible people, you love them so much more than the people that are are morally yep. good, because they feel yes. more real. Oh they feel like people you know in your real life, because people suck half the time. Yeah. 
I I really want to get into, and you can keep adding because it it'll be related. But so I watched Industry, which is another BBC show, and this one was on Crave. Oh, okay, all right. And so it, so this is it's so interesting because it's very similar. So there's it's a huge ensemble cast. So I basically focused on the one character that's like honed in on and the one that I want to talk about the most. Okay. It's played by Myhala Harold as Harper Stern, Harper Stern being the main character. And so she's a young black woman who is being hired at a stock market trading company. Like I maybe it's called a hedge fund. I'm not, I actually didn't catch exactly what their business is, but they're one of the biggest, one of these companies that sells to clients packages of stocks. Mm, okay. So not venture capital. It's probably a hedge fund. A bunch of them are hired and the, it's an eight episode TV show that at the end of the eight episodes, half of them are going to be fired the interns, and half of them are going to be hired on permanently. That's the catch of the show, and it's about each of them from different backgrounds and how they got there and why they're in this industry. The show, it's exactly so much that energy. Party hard, play hard sort of lifestyle differences and the toxicity of the different, especially their mentors. And so that's the sort of relationship that you're seeing. They each, each of the characters has a mentor in the industry, and they each show sort of different toxic parts Mm. of the industry and that's what makes it interesting and i was talking to my friend through this whole storyline of harper's and and so there's lots of interesting stories but i think hers is the keystone to the show which makes it so interesting her mentor is an older asian guy and he is all about getting the sales he is like get the sales that's what we're here to do he's about results right and she is she wants to follow in his footsteps and make get the job that's what you see from her. This fire, she's like, I'm going to make it. And the first episode, she has trouble due to a bunch of things happening, but she, you see her make a commitment. I'm choosing this job. I'm choosing this money. I'm choosing this career. She makes some mistakes that she sort of doubles down on throughout the show. And this point, okay, this is real spoilers for the end of the show, but I really want to get into this because this is a really cool aspect, but I, you really should watch the show before hearing this part. Essentially, there is another mentor character she has who is about feminism. And she's like, I want to do feminism and stuff. But in the end, she says, I can't help you, Harper. You've made some mistakes that I can't condone. And therefore, I can't give you my support in getting the permanent position. Eric had said, though, that he would be by her side, even though their relationship at this point in the show is very, very tense. So she is torn between the two of them. And she is she has a monologue uh, or sort of a dialogue with one of the higher ups who is another another non-white woman at, in, the, in the highest position you see woman in the show. of color yeah woman of color that's the term i was looking for and she says we're trying to change this from within we're trying to change this interesting we're trying to do things so harper i need you to be on board with this and harper replies you don't even know who i am you've never talked to me like directly until this point why would i listen to your advice and basically the end of the show is her choosing a very devastating sort of blow to the movement to turn uh, to change things from within by mm. these people in order to further her own career. Right. It's a really interesting position for the show to end off on. It's probably the most interesting part of the show. But it also it, it, cool character dynamics and an interesting view of the industry itself. Mm-hmm. I would say there's some of that in this, definitely less so. Um but this is more of a personal life, like in Flack, it's more of a personal life struggling with like the career woman aspect. 
And by the end of it, in trying to juggle both halves, but live to the extreme in both aspects of her life, she ends up blowing up her most important relationships on either side of that fence, you know? And, like, that's not a huge spoiler. You can tell from the beginning that it's going in that sort of, like, slow demise kind of spiraling direction. But she she ends up doing sort of irreparable harm to all of these people, both in her, like, career and in her personal yeah. life by trying to live the most presently in the most extreme versions of both her personal life and her professional life. And it's just like, they can't, you can't balance that way. Um, so it's, mean, it's, yeah. it's really interesting. And seeing all of these different, exceedingly wealthy, exceedingly famous people hmm. that are able to... True, the PR side too, yeah. Yeah, able to live these extreme versions of themselves and have these extreme personal lives, but they can pay somebody to mop it up for them so they never have to reap the consequences that she's slowly crawling towards having to deal in, deal with herself. Yeah, and I mean, industry uh, doesn't really get into the problem of work-life balance because in a way, the characters that you're paying attention to are just uh, these kids going to their parties with each other. Yeah. And it doesn't really show their relationships with people that they outside of this field. But it is a good point and something that you and I have been dealing with so much and i think that's a way in which 100 these types of things can be relatable is that it is in a way impossible to be totally committed to a career and have a good work-life balance there is it's it's a trade-off that's so hard to decide within one's own mind and i think a lot of people the healthiest way that healthy is maybe too strong a term for it but it's like you often prioritize your career for a period of time and then find periods that you can have a better work-life balance and go back and forth. The, the people's um, ambitious people that I've seen, that is how their lives have tended to be, where they have periods where they're like, I established myself in a period where I wasn't so things. Does that mean you have to be toxic to other people in your life? I'm not so sure. I think that can that's maybe some bad habits that can be. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is bad habits. And I think... I think there are challenges in in people who don't work in those sort of high intensity, like, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a, a corporate job shouldn't be high intensity, but in a lot of ways it is. And people who don't work in those environments can't always relate. Mm -hmm. So they can't understand the need to like be as intense or be as full force. So sure, in aspects, I'm sure there's, toxicity absolutely but sometimes it's just you know you're you're putting your career first you're pushing yourself extra hard and there are at times going to be people in your life who who can't relate to that and can't understand it and that can cause a lot of dissonance in your relationships too which is absolutely you know incredibly frustrating but yeah i mean overall i would say flack is a lot of fun like it's very worth watching i really enjoyed anna paquin in it a lot um, more than mm. I have in a lot of other things that I've seen, including True Blood, which, I mean, you know, I love True Blood, but Sookie kind of sucked, like, hard mm -hmm. in True Blood. And Anna Paquin is a terrible person in this show, but very sympathetic yeah, in, cool a, in a, a strange role. way. It's so weird that we managed to hit on, a, what is it, what's it called? Twin movies? Or that thing? I mean, these aren't movies, but that... Twin shows. Yeah, twin shows. Yeah. Do you know, is that the term? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like a bug's life and ants, or... Oh, there's yeah. A, there's a yeah, few yeah. of them that... It's a phenomenon that's well known. Well, I mean, I think I think it's a little bit less... Like, I think flack and industry have a lot of similarities, but it's not quite as, like, 
aggressive in your face as A Bug's Life and Ants, which are literally the same story. Yeah. Or like uh, Friends with Benefits and No Strings Attached, which again are literally the same, the exact same story. Yeah. With just different actors. Did you hear about this cool one with the a tw- one where it's, I'm trying to remember the exact, I know it's There Will Be Blood is one of the movies. And I think it's No Country for Old Men, but I could be wrong about that. But they actually, they're very similar. Oh, they were filmed right near each other. Like it is No Country. Yeah, so they actually, yeah. yeah, they actually ended up interfering with each other's shots at yeah. times. And I'm just like, that's, I mean, that's just wild things about the industry yeah i think there was like a an explosion or something and there will be blood and it fucked up one of the coen brothers shots in uh, no country and they had to like put their shot off i'm glad i got the two movies right yeah you did i'm pretty i'm like 99 percent sure yeah that's funny (laughs) movie fun fact yeah i wanted to um i mean i just talked about industry so technically <laughs> we're trying to make this more conversational well i i don't want to double down on yeah one, i mean yeah. i was about to jump it whatever show. i watched <laughs> i watched a discovery of witches i started the second season of it how about that i'm just gonna jump into that i yeah so i started season two of discovery of witches because it just came out there's only three episodes out right now because they're doing that weekly release thing okay which makes sense since it's literally been two years since the first season came out. But the the show is based off of a trilogy of books. Mm-hmm. And each season is a book, essentially, right. is what they're makes doing. Sense. I love it. It's just so enchanting. I mean, it's just, ele- it's literally just like elevated Twilight. But it's it's so great for me. <laughs> I know. I mean, we both love The Magician so much. A show that we... Like Shit's Creek could, could talk about forever. Yeah, and it's the same. It's it's just elevated Harry Potter. <laughs> no, I mean, Discovery Witches is, is a lot of fun. I'm annoyed that you still haven't watched it since I gave you my fucking login for Shudder. Well, I've been watching a lot of stuff on the TV, so yeah. All right. Well, anyway, it's a, um, it's a Sundance original show, weirdly enough. Oh. Yeah. It's just distributed. It's distributed by both Sundance and Shudder, which is why it's on Shudder. They have like a deal. But it, it is a Sundance original, which is strange. But I it's so it's it hits that like really comforting kind of sweet spot for me in the same way that something like Outlander did or the magicians did, mm. where it's like the narrative is very standard, but it's it creates this really amazing world. For you Mm -hmm. and it's it's very dark academia which is right up your alley uh she's a grad student studying history (laughs) tell me more and she's also a witch but she doesn't discover that until like the show starts so she has no idea she's from a long line of witches but her magic has been bound that's what yeah i really do love grad students magicians are grad students even Outlander, she's uh, she, is she a professor or she she's definitely well researched. I'm trying to remember what her actual position is though. I don't remember either. But she's definitely like a scholar of some sort. I know he's a history buff, which is where she gets all her like a lot of her knowledge about history was her fiance mm. in like the real world or like the modern world, um, because he's researching his like genealogy and stuff. So that's how she learns a lot of what's happening in Scotland at the time when she gets sent back. But I don't remember what she does. Yeah. She's smart, but I can't remember what she does. Just the quickest 
segue into Outlander. My only one point about, I only finished season one. The end of season one is with the like gay kidnapping scenario with her not husband and him. And I'm like, I have never been like offended so much myself by yeah, a show. It's bad. It's I, I'm like the no. season premiere of the second season is rough. Like, and in, you know yeah. what? Look, okay, it's terrible and it is definitely offensive, but in a lot of ways, having to see so many like women rape stories over and over and over again in horror movies, in TV shows, mm-hmm. in thrillers, anything, it is in a way like moderately refreshing that it's not a woman being raped again, but it's incredibly disgusting and offensive so it's like it's not good it's not better it's not that it's a gay rape to me i'm like that you know in a way could be portrayed more on television or in movies and whatnot my problem is in the mind of diana gabaldon or you know who wrote this scene and or this this scenario it's like i could feel the mechanisms of what make people like the scene and that's what disturbs me is that she's using this like no her relationship with her husband from another time is now transposed to this super evil man who looks exactly like him, and I believe is his ancestor, who is now mm-hmm. a gay yep. rapist of her current boyfriend. And I'm just like, there's something, I could even feel it happening to myself. I'm like, there's something psychologically changing for one's view of the relationships here. But I'm like, you should not use that mechanism. Yeah. Like, that's a very bad choice. And it's revealing about our unconscious biases about certain things, but it's so gross. Yeah, it's also really intense and pretty graphic, which is also not great. I mean, those, yes, that's like directorial and, yeah, cinematography. Not cinematography choices. I'm not sure. Writing. I'm not sure who chooses. All of it. All of those things, I feel like. But moving away from weird rape scenes, which we, we seem to talk about a lot. Do we? For some reason. I, I feel like so. we talk about, like, sexual assault and weird graphic sex stuff, like, more often than I would like. I don't feel that way, but <laughs> I feel like we um, could do it more. Oh, okay. All right. I'll bring up every rape revenge movie I've ever seen. Discovery of Witches, obviously, is very, like, there's a lot of romanticization and stuff. They, they're doing a weird thing with, like, I, I don't know how to explain this. Without it sounding offensive, because all of the main characters are white people. Every single one. But, like, she's a witch, he's a vampire, and the races never mix. And it's this, like, gotta keep the bloodlines pure thing. Mm. So, like, the witches, if they found out about them, would, you know, cut her off from magic. Uh, The vampires, if they find out, would want to kill her and, like, disown him from their weird vampire sect. But they also have this, like, strange political treaty where all the races have a council and, like, kind of work together to keep the peace. So there's, I I don't really know what they're trying to say about systemic issues, but there's some kind of conversation they're trying to have here about class and race that's, like, not quite getting across, probably because every character, even though they're different races, because there's demons and, and witches and vampires are all white people. It's making it difficult to really conceive what they're trying to have a conversation about. But it's aesthetically beautiful. They spend all of their time 
in England, France, and Venice. That's what I want to hear. Oh. Yeah, it's like oh. the entire time they're oh in God. like London. No, I do have to watch this. Show. Like the south of France and Venice, Italy. Those are like the only three places you see because the council is in Venice. He is from a long line of French vampires, and they have an estate in the south of France. And she is a grad student and TA at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole thing. And it's just, it's stunning. All of their clothing is stunning. There are so many libraries in every episode. It's amazing. Oh, in the second. In the second season, she's discovering her power more. So she's like becoming the more powerful of the two of them. And the dynamic is flipping more because, you know, mm. he's an old world vampire. So he's used to being the power force, the one in the in control. And she's significantly more powerful than him, which is interesting. And there's there's a lot going on with like time period, which is why I'm I'm sort of likening it in a lot of ways to Outlander, I think, because there's this time okay. jumping aspect to it in the second season. Not an enormous spoiler, but it, it, it makes it really aesthetically interesting. You get a lot of like that really cool, interesting yeah. costuming that's like very as period accurate as I think you could get for a television show. Yeah. I just I love it. It's awesome. enchanting, I would say. No, I oh. I love that. And it, it has Matthew Good in it, who I just, I love him so much. I love Matthew Good so in? much. He was in um, he was in Downton Abbey. Okay, didn't see that. He was Ozymandias in the Watchmen movie. Okay. I don't remember the movie as well, because I, I love the TV show a lot. And so I can't, it's actually hard. I haven't seen the movie since a bazillion years ago. Okay. Well, he's in it and he's excellent. And then um, The Witch is played by Teresa Palmer, who's in Lights Out. She's the main character in Lights Out. Do you remember that horror movie? I don't even know that one. Uh, with the blind guy, I think. Oh, no. Sorry. That's Don't Breathe. Lights Out is the is the one where when the lights turn out, there's a demon thing. It's stupid. It's not good. Don't watch it. It's actually a terrible movie. Okay. But she was, in, she was the main character in Warm Bodies. Do you remember that one? I do remember, I, I, again, I couldn't put a face to a name. God, you suck at this game. Oh, my God. You know? Every Anybody who listens, the five people that listen to this oh are going to be, like, screaming at you. I'll be sure to cut it off. For not knowing who this is. No, <laughs> Anything that it. makes me look bad. Everything makes you look bad. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I think about that a lot. I'm, like, probably not wrong. What, that everything makes you look bad? Yeah. I'm not wrong. I have very... Very non-PC. I go my way. Oh my god. Okay. I did, I told go you I want to talk about this. Because men going their own way. It's one of the male movements Ugh. out there. I wanted Men's to tell you about activists. Uh, this, this new new development that all my friends have been talking about uh, in Ottawa. Now that we're saying, just saying things. <laughs> it's an enormous city. Like, they're not yeah. going to find you in Ottawa. And I, and I don't care. It's I'm fine with it. We've been talking about... So it's been this thing. Twitter's been talking about it. It's been a buzz about... You, of course, know the alpha male, beta male thing from the stupid study of wolves that was wrong like a bajillion years ago. Alpha. So they've they've made a whole astrology of it, essentially. Oh, my God. I love, I just, can I take a pause? Can I just take a pause and say, like, men will make fun of women liking anything, including Absolutely. fucking astrology. Anything mm-hmm. that we're interested in makes us basic or stupid or silly or flighty. But they'll make an entire, like, fucking end-to-end chart. Oh, yes. About alpha males 
and like yeah. their stations in society, or they'll like create a fake fantasy football league, and like that's cool. That's that's men stuff. Fuck off, man. Just let me like my shitty shows. Let me sit here and like drink <laughs> wine and watch The Bachelor if I fucking want to. I don't, but I shouldn't get made fun of for it. Yeah, so alpha males are at the top of the pyramid. Beta males are underneath them, right? Regular guys with things, right? But then they go down the list of the alphabet and are just like weaker guys, weaker guys, weaker guys to like Omega, which are like full incel, black-pilled. I'm sad that I know a lot of these terms, but people who are like, have no chance. I thought it was red-pilled. What's black pill? So red pill means you believe in this stuff and you're willing to play the game. You're like, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be an alpha male. I'm going to try to like win Black-pilled means you're ready to lay down and die. You're like, I understand what the game is, and I see no hope. So you black-pill, you're out. Sigma males are lone wolves. So that's the new fun one that that they're all abuzz about. They're like, I'm a Sigma, I'm half Sigma. You know, I'm half Slytherin, half Hufflepuff, I'm half (laughs) Sigma, half Alpha. You know? And it's like, you know, it's like sometimes I'm a lone wolf, but I'm also Alpha of the pack, you know, when I'm in a leadership position. Okay. And it's just like, my that God, That literally, do- that's, that doesn't even make sense. And that's not how wolves work. That's, no. that's so, not how wolves work. They're, they're not arbitrary. It's not like you're born an alpha. It's not like that kind of a pecking order. They just fit into the situations that make the most sense for them. Smaller and faster wolves are scouts. Wolves that have a better sense of smell do tracking wolves that are burlier happen to be the ones that are enforcers like it's literally not like they are born to be anything or they fight their way to the top and beat down the that's not how wolf packs work yeah i mean it's it's based on very bad science and you know and same with same with astrology and so it's like it's so funny that guys you know i'm very interested in what makes people who are interested in astrology go into it because as I was just talking about tarot cards earlier, right? There is something that feels enchanting about it. And I think we do need parts of our lives that feel more than mundane in whatever way that is. Yeah. There's a spirituality to it, an etherealness. Yeah. And there's, and there, everyone does this in different ways. I'm not saying, you know, that's the only way to do it, right? So, but guys, when they do this, this one in particular, right? It's, it feels like this, it's so much better because it's scientifically backed up or, or there's this feeling that they, they've grounded not. it. That's exactly it, right? It's like you're grounding. That's what makes it even more insidious or worse because it's like it's pretending to be serious, like to be truly like well understood, serious. We figured out the whole system. We know how society works. And you're dumb if you don't understand. I mean this in the most genuine way possible. Cryptozoology is more scientific (laughs) than whatever the fuck you've been talking about. Like, I would believe in the chupacabra, the Peruvian goat sucker, before I would believe in whatever the fuck this caste system that weird incels have made up. Jesus Christ. Um, They're not incels. Those are the omegas. They're the alphas and sigmas. No, anybody who's sitting there, like, (laughs) pseudoscience and their way into some arbitrary fucking pecking order in, like, male society that's backed up by nothing just so they can call themselves by some bullshit Greek letter? No. No. Absolutely not. Unicorns are real before that shit is. 
At least unicorns are the official animal of an actual real fucking country. That country is Scotland, which I think is amazing. I wanted to ask, before we get into the movie, if you wanted to do Bridgerton. I did finish it. Oh, shit. I totally forgot about Bridgerton. I had, like, all of this shit, like, laid out to talk about. Completely forgot (laughs) we said we were going to talk about Bridgerton. Yeah, fuck it. We can talk about um, Gossip Girl Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. (laughs) I just before doing this podcast, actually, I saw a bunch of articles came out that it is now officially the most successful series Netflix ever has had, which is wild to me. Um, It makes sense when you think about it. It's greenlit for a second season. Hopefully, you would think. No, it's, yeah, it's been greenlit for a second season. And Shonda Rhimes has said, like, she has an eight seasonal, like, plan for the show. Oh, my God. Which is, in no way is this surprising to me, given the nature of literally every other Shonda Rhimes show. It's Phoebe, ooh, don't know how to pronounce this last name, Denver. Uh, as Daphne, the main Bridgerton, the eldest daughter, who is falling in love with, yeah, Rega Jean Page, uh, who plays She's Simon, the Duke of Hastings. The most beautiful man in a show right now. He is incredibly charismatic and gorgeous. Oh my god. Unbelievably gorgeous in it. I do, I, I'll admit, I think Daphne is a bit of a... Blase character. It's, I yes. But she's, she's good. She's a bit blase. Also the bangs. Oh man, those bangs are rough to look at for what is it, ten episodes? Oof. Yeah, I did did I send you the TikToks for Bridgerton musical? No, I don't think so. It might be because I wasn't sure how far in the show you were and I didn't want to spoil anything. But okay, so did I tell you about the Ratatusical? Oh my god. What a rabbit hole are we going down here? <laughs> So it's a TikTok rabbit hole, because this is my thing. Oh my god. But basically, on the... Not that there's, like, sides to TikTok, but there's definitely, like, sort of subcultures within TikTok for, like, various mm-hmm. interests. And in within one of them, there was this crowdsourcing for a Ratatouille, the movie, but musical. So all of these okay. different creators on TikTok started composing music and like choreographing dances and recording songs and creating playbills for the Ratatouille, the Ratatouille musical. And it got picked up by like, you know, the news and New York playbill and Broadway and stuff. And they were able to create this um, virtual musical where they had famous Broadway actors and Wayne Brady come in and sing their originally composed songs for money. Like they sold tickets and in order to like crowdfund an actual legitimate fucking musical for when Broadway reopens. So they made a okay. shitload of money Fair enough. doing this and, and have basically written an end to end musical about Ratatouille. So now since Bridgerton came out, there is a section of TikTok doing the exact same thing, but for Bridgerton. And it's led by uh, these two women who are composing and singing original songs specifically about, you know, scenes and characters in Bridgerton. The music mm-hmm. is beautiful. Like, it's actually nice. incredible. And it's gaining a lot of traction. So there is a chance that we might also see a crowdfunded Bridgerton musical. I mean, fair enough. I mean, the show is super fun. 
It is. It's yeah. just it's it's eminently watchable. Just a great time and a fresh idea. It, well, I say that it's it's sort of the evolution of a bunch of ideas. Yeah. Like we've are we've already talked about a bunch of those. The Great Emma. I think there's a few others, but I mean, where. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 got that feel of like historical revisionism. It has a similar feel to Downton Abbey, where it's just like an elevated period piece soap opera, basically. But really, what it yeah. is is any Jane Austen novel, but Gossip Girl. That's that's what it is. It's just Pride and Prejudice Gossip Girl. It's tricky to get the exact because it's modernized. So, for example, the music in it is often classical variations of pop music from today. Yeah, which feels very A Knight's Tale. Yeah, so so that's that's the vibe you have to get. You have to understand that that's... The, and so you can see how that would be very popular on Netflix, like something that everyone can get into. But then it's additional big conceit, which I've actually argued with uh, you know, my roommate about, which is whether they should have explained or not the fact that the historical revisionism, which is that there are a bunch of black characters in it who play important roles in high society. And they do explain it in the show. And my roommate said they shouldn't have. They should have just had it that there's just a diverse cast. And that's just it. Like, I think in Hamilton, that's they don't have an explanation. It's literally just that the characters are cast. But in here, there is an explanation that the queen, who is black, was married by the king, and that elevated the positions of... People, which I'm like, I, you know, it's I interesting. It sort of made sense that they explained it because the purpose was like the whole conversation around that explanation was that their position in society was tenuous and unlike yes. the white counterparts, their status could be taken away for any for reason. Sure. So they had to work really tightly within the confines of society. And I think it was important to make that distinction because it explains a lot of the motivations of specific characters in the show and why they act much stricter than other characters in the show who can be a little bit more flighty. You have to not take that line of thinking too seriously though because if you think about some certain timeline things and things it doesn't really make sense. You know the duke is 30-ish how long could the king and queen have been married that his father was already in a position of high status for many years? Yeah, I know. So it's like, you have, to, it's a soft explanation. And I'm like, if you're going to do the explanation, maybe it should have been harder. Regardless, it works super well for making for a world in which these characters interact. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like when I first was hearing about the show, two of the black characters in the show were the ones in a lot of gifts, in a lot of the things being talked about. And watching the show, it's like, yeah, they're the best characters. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it really is a cool and really diverse cast that isn't tokenized. They're true, they're the true heart of the show. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome. I say that, although, in a way, it's the two families, the Bridgertons and the Featheringtons, which are the center families of the show, and they're white families. But regardless. I think, like... They're the catalyzers, I would say. They're, like, the antagonizers, like, the, especially the Featheringtons. But mm -hmm. the the characters that you're talking about, like, the Duke and the, um, what's her name? Lady something, and I can't think of her name. Yes. Oh, no. Fuck. Whatever. But those two characters in particular are definitely, like, 
more of the soul or the backbone of the show. You know, they're more like what happens mm-hmm. with them is more of the crux and more of the like inter- entertaining portions. And the other characters sort of drive their plots forward more. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, maybe I would feel differently if Daphne wasn't such a bore. But man, she was lame. Yeah. It is pretty surprising the amount of stuff that happens in the first season, if this yeah. is meant to be an eight season show. Oh my show. god, so much stuff because, happens. Yeah. it To me, you know how, like, I think we've talked about it in this way before, but for me it's like shows have sort of like opening brackets at the beginning where they're like central questions that are being asked. And in Gossip Girl, it's of course, who is Gossip Girl? Mm-hmm. And there's a similar question here. There's a character, or a hidden character, who is Mrs. Whistledown, who has been writing this gossip rag that everyone Lady. reads around town, exactly like in Gossip Lady Girl. Lady Whistledown. Yes. And so you're following this mystery. And so that's one of the opening brackets. But of course, the other opening bracket is, will they, won't they fall in love? How will their love story go in the main characters? And there's lots of side stories. Yeah. But I'm surprised at how many things were pretty much completed by the end of this first season. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm not sure what's meant to be the mystery that continues or the like plot lines that continue. So that's one way in which I'm like, I think it was a really satisfying first season. But I'm like, this doesn't really feel like a planned eight season show. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. But apparently there's tons of books. Maybe so. it goes through like the different generations within that family. I mean, there's like fucking twelve Bridgertons or some shit. Like there's so many children <laughs> that like I feel like, you know, yeah. he got room to grow a little bit. Part of me like part of me's really happy that they told you who Lady Whistledown was. I mean, this isn't a huge spoiler. You can feel them amping up to it. But by the end of the show, you know who Lady Whistledown is. And part of me is kind of frustrated. And I think, like, the biggest reason why they gave up that that person so quickly is because maybe they weren't sure how popular the show was or if it would get to continue, if it would be greenlit for a second season. Um, So they didn't want to leave it off at, like, this enormous spoiler. But it's, it's like, now that it is going to keep going, it's like, well... Now, like, we already know who it is. So is it just going to be everybody else finding out who it is? Are we going to go through, like, all of the girls being, like, presented and having their debutante season or whatever? Like, I don't really... I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. It's funny. Last year, I actually ended up reading a couple of the Jane Austen books for a, like, officially called, like, Jane Austen Book Club. What? I mean, this show is a Jane Austen novel, so let's not throw up at it. Yeah, but it's all, like, modern and sexy, and it's Gossip Girl, so I like it. Oh, my God. I think a lot of people are watching the show because of the enchantment with the time period and with the the, the, the idea of going to balls all the time and, and the season and, um, you know, the marriage market. I also, I saw something recently that explained the difference between the male gaze and the female gaze um, that mm. was really interesting, where, like, and, and this isn't knocking either version of this i just want to preface that but like the male gaze is traditionally more um like the physicality seeing like the naked form or whatever Mm -hmm. of a woman and in a lot of films where you see like really hot dudes it's still the male gaze you know seeing chris hemsworth as thor completely shredded and shirtless walking around is still technically what would be considered fundamentally the male gaze because that's not necessarily what women want and i think period shows 
and period movies do a really good job of kind of encompassing what the female gaze is. And the female gaze is typically, instead of centering around like physicality and naked form, it's more centered around forms of communication where like hands and eyes and lips are seen as really erotic or really sexual, um, especially in, in period dramas. Um, and I mm-hmm. think they do that to its full effect in Bridgerton, where you do still have the male gaze. Obviously, there's, you know, a 15 minute montage of sex. But some of the scenes that you mm-hmm. see the most gifts about the most things women reposting are like Simon having the spoon up to his mouth and licking the ice cream off of it, you know, or like yeah. really intense piercing glances between characters or in Pride and Prejudice, the one that's talked about the most is that hand flex scene with Mr. Darcy where he's, you know, frustrated and walking away from her and he's doing like that flex thing, like, God damn it. That's the female gaze. So it's interesting that the period thing has become more and more popular because it is more and more centered around what is considered female ideals as far as what's sexually attractive. Yeah, and, and to make the, I completely agree, and I think to make the comparison with superhero stories, which you know is another sort of old genre that started in the twenties or whatever, um, and it's been building up since then. This idea of the superhero or the hero's journey story, right? This idealized man and that type of story, and then comparing it to something like a Pride and Prejudice story, and like what is what is the nostalgia there? What is the homecoming that you feel, and that makes can be a comforting binge forever or get super obsessed with as a fan type thing for guys and for girls. I think we know in modern society that our lives aren't ex- like, you're not going to be a superhero. There's it's not, there's hero's journey isn't really out there for you. And you're also not going to be on the marriage market in the way you are in a, a pride and prejudice. You're not going to be 16 years old. Yeah. Put on here, get married with it before sex and whatnot and all those things. But there's something in which it's a, a basic refinement of the basic desires that are going on there. Is that good that we still have those? It's like, I'm not, it's not a, necessarily a judgment of whether these things are good or bad, but it is about like what comforts us for that, like the simplicity of the like, there's a clarity to what you're supposed to do in these, in these different stories. Heroes are supposed to be heroes. In the marriage market, you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to find a man in possession of a good fortune wanting a, uh, a wife. And so, yeah, no, I mean that, to, and the, the eroticism that you talk about is, I mean, so prominent, the prolific making of fan fiction of like what types of eroticism. Well, and there is an enormous, enormous market for erotic novels. There is an entire mm-hmm. section dedicated to it in almost every bookstore you go to. Or and even romance in general. Yeah. Yeah. So Bridgerton makes sense to me. I I think as the most popular, you know, it must be that a lot of guys are watching it too. And so it'd be curious to me what allows it to be that intersectional show. That like that has reached the widest. Audience. I mean, I want the reason not to be that there's a 15 minute sex montage right in the middle, uh, but I definitely feel like that helps. Yeah, I, I actually doubt that's the reason. I feel like it doesn't hinder it. I don't know if guys actually go into shows looking for sex montages, but maybe. I don't know. There was an entire website that used to be dedicated to like figuring out when. Like, some chick showed her tits in a movie, so. That's true. Like There's at least yeah. a subset of men that are specifically looking for, like, that kind of overt eroticism in television and movies. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just, you know, 
Yeah. It it exists. It's out there. But yeah, Bridgerton was a a, a really fun show. And I definitely want to watch later seasons. I guess I'll, I, admittedly, it's not my like favorite show no. or anything like this. I think it's just one to enjoy with other people. It's very bingeable too. Like it's it's so yeah. short and it's so easy to blow through and that makes it really fun. Whereas most of the other new shows that I've been watching are releasing on like a weekly basis, mm. which I understand from a marketing perspective and like maintaining viewership perspective when you add new seasons. But like now with like the instant gratification of almost every other show on streaming services, it is incredibly frustrating to have to wait a week. I feel so old school. It's such, it's so <laughs> weird. It's so weird because this is normal from our childhood. Yeah. I think it's nice to have bingeable shows come out, but I think it's nice to have weekly shows for the discussion, for the like having something to look forward to on a weekly basis. Absolutely. But yeah, we should move on to the movie, Antebellum. All right, fine. I'm okay. <laughs> Disrupt the flow of conversation. Yeah, so we watched Antebellum this week, which is new to Prime ish. It was released on Prime a little while ago, but it was for rental, so now it's, you know, free with a Prime membership. It is, I believe, produced or executive produced by Jordan Peele, who did Us and Get Out. And mm-hmm. it is directed by, who did I say? Did you write it down? I can open it again, yeah. but I was pretty sure you wrote it down. It is Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz. I looked both of them up and they don't, like, they don't have a huge list of credits. They're not super known, which is mm-hmm. honestly pretty, like, it's pretty surprising with how this, this feels like a very, um, I don't want to say advanced, that's not the right word, but it, it feels like a very seasoned movie, you know? Like, it doesn't feel like mm-hmm. it's put together by early in their career writer-directors, because they wrote and directed the thing together. So I think that's that's kind of interesting, that they're sort of young on the scene, they're very fresh. Stars Janelle Monet and Jenna Malone. Yep. Oh, who was Jenna Malone in it? Jenna Malone was the main white lady. Oh, I said her name like three times while we were watching the movie. I, I did. I, Jenna Malone. I just, I guess I just didn't re- recognize that name. Jenna Malone from Donnie Darko, Saved, Sucker Punch. Mm-hmm. These are the only things on the top of my mind that Jenna Malone has been in. She must have been really young in Donnie Darko. Yeah, I think she was like 18. And then, you know, Janelle Monet from Moonlight and Hidden Figures and. Yeah. The most who is incredible, just the most gorgeous woman on the planet, insanely fabulous. Like her, her sense yeah. of style, every outfit they put her in was just even better than the last one. It was so good, she's so amazing looking. <laughs> yeah. Okay, off off the top. So we struggled. We talked about this during the movie. This is a really hard one when it comes yes. to spoilers. I don't know how we're going to talk about this. We're going to try to hit a middle path, but be warned, there's going to be at least medium level spoilers because it's almost impossible to talk about this movie without some level of spoilers. We're going to try to not say the whole thing, though. I would recommend, if you haven't seen it yet and you want to watch it, to just turn off, like, finish the podcast after you watch the movie. Like, I would just turn off the the podcast. We we both thought it was excellent, so it does get our It is... 
tremendous. I I truly truly do recommend it. But if you if you want to watch it, I would turn off this podcast. For those of you still here, yeah. For those of you who've already watched it, from five to one, <laughs> the movie starts with a cool quote: uh, "The past is never dead. It is never even past." Or it might be not even past. Well, fucked it up. Anyways, line from Faulkner that's quoted right at the beginning of the movie sets up for this narrative which begins in Confederate times. Antebellum. And during the Civil War. Antebellum. Well, antebellum It's era. funny because they say antebellum, which they say at the beginning and they point, uh, or at least Prime tells you that antebellum actually just means pre-war. Pre-war times. But it's funny because they're actually in the Civil War during it. So it, it is a funny kind of... Well, yeah. The antebellum... Like, antebellum literally means pre-war, but the terminology was, is used now to define the era of just before the Civil War and the beginnings of the Civil War. It's like the antebellum South or the Grand South or the, or what is considered the Old South. It's, it's like prime and heightened level where they had the most money. But yes, the literal translation just means pre-war. And so... We're, we're here uh, focused on a plantation, cotton plantation, with slaves. Yeah. And their harrowing lives. Yeah. That weird it's... things, which we've seen in movies many times before. Yeah. But you can already get a vibe from the beginning of that Jordan Peele kind of feeling, where there's an ear, you're, you're expecting some kind of sci-fi concept or some kind of well, weird thing to happen. I mean, I, I think you're expecting that because you went into it knowing that it was a, a horror movie produced by Jordan Peele. I feel like if you went in yeah. without that knowledge, you, you wouldn't get that feeling. No, yeah, you, yes, I, I think that's probably At true. least not until you hit about like the 30, 40 minute mark. I, I don't think you would, you would go in with that expectation because it starts... You know, in a in a maybe more intensified version of something like Twelve Years a Slave, um, it has mm-hmm. a very similar vibe in the beginning. Yeah, but we know going into it that it is produced by some of these people. So you're like, yeah. you're anticipating the the what the horror element is, yeah. what twist on the genre we're gonna do, and boy oh boy, does it have a have some ideas. It is a whirlwind that just like threw me. For more of a like, we we've we've watched we've watched a lot of movies between the two of us with like big twists or, you know, really intense like genre flips, and this one, maybe it's because I saw so few trailers for it. Like, I really wanted to go in clean, so I didn't watch anything. I didn't really read any of the synopses, but this was so unexpected for me, and just like mind-blowing for me like it really really i was already invested i was already very into this and then this this happened and i was like whoa yeah so you get your second warning here but so the the thing that happens in the uh, middle of the movie is that you see janelle monet's character in bed going to sleep after like a very harrowing day and you hear a cell phone ring and i literally thought it was my cell phone in the room I was like, because it can't be. And so then, so then the, the camera flips and we're in modern day times and you see Janelle Monet getting up uh, in modern day Chicago from her like alarm or whatever on her phone. And you're just like, this movie has a counterpart in the, in modern times. Yeah. My, 
immediate like thought would be something like like I was thinking Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. What's what's the one with Same. Nicole Kidman, Little Hours or Tiny Hours or something like? Oh, I never saw that one. Yeah, it's similar idea to Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like some kind of reincarnation, or some kind of because they talk about the genes, the DNA. Yeah, and and and, and so we we're talking about the metaphor that's going to be placed. That even today, characters who are part of these same lineages are are going to, and that's why they cast the same same actress for each one to show this direct connection yeah. between this that that old South and and today. And you meet other characters who are characters from the historical time period yes. as well. But that thing blew our minds when we switched shift over. And Janelle Monet is just her character is this idealized, just incredible woman. Yeah. That I was just I was just I just wanted to watch a movie just to watch her for 40 minutes. I think you just do her life. wanted it to was be so her, enjoyable. which I respect. Yeah. Like, everyone should want to be Janelle Monet in, like, that moment. I mean, she's not only fashionable, has a beautiful family, like, great family life, cool friends, and just incredible fashion. But in the world that I love, of course, academia. And she's using her, she's a, a PhD in American constitutional studies and has published best-selling books for the public and is a news program. It might have been Fox News. I'm not sure which it one it was. It looked like something but, Fox or CNN or a major news network. Yeah, uh, where she was explaining her position on the plight of Black people today and how these the roots of these issues are still still yeah. matter. And it's just, you know, that's the dream, to interact with me, to learn this stuff in order to affect change, in order to bring your ideas out into the world and for those ideas to be meaningful to yeah. today. And I oh, just, I couldn't have been happier with the things. And then, but her, her her friends too have actually interesting, or at least her one friend, has an interesting position that actually has cool moments throughout the show as well. Yeah. That are totally her own. I think the interesting juxtaposition too, because you, you start out in the Old South in like the Civil War and Slave Era, which is incredibly harrowing and obviously, you know, horrifying. But then you're seeing her in modern times navigating day-to-day racist interactions like really is what's happening these like subtle undercurrents of racism that as like a high-powered professional intelligent woman of color she is constantly having to bite back against so i think that's you know that's really interesting too and it's subtle it's all of these subtle slights you know like the guy on the news network who's not overtly white power racist, but is undercutting her from a racist position or the woman at the front desk yep. that she asks to make a reservation for her at a restaurant and is snippy with her in a very specific kind of I'm better than you way. And when they get to the restaurant, they have the shittiest possible table at this really nice restaurant. So I, I feel like that's interesting. And because of this, high intensity first 20 to 40 minutes of the movie every interaction that Janelle Monet's character has with a white character you feel tense about you feel like stressed out for her because you have just watched the exact same woman but you know presumably a different character go through a much more heightened horrifying version of what she's dealing with right now so you're like waiting for that other shoe to drop it yeah exactly and the juxtaposition works 
so well and is so extreme. Uh, oh, I wanted to, I wanted to discuss the thing that you had mentioned to me early in the movie about the Gone with the Wind comparison. Yes, if you wanted to talk. Yeah. About that. So I I while we were watching the movie, I looked up because I'm I'm the biggest fan of looking up movie trivia. It's my favorite thing to do. So I looked up movie trivia for Antebellum and the two directors when they began working on this film, acquired the actual camera lenses from 1938's Gone with the Wind uh, because they wanted to recreate the the feeling of Gone with the Wind, the appearance of Gone with the Wind, while also having the opportunity to correct what Gone with the Wind did in so far as their depiction of slavery, racism, and people of color in that time period. Which I think is really interesting because they yeah. want to put you in exactly the mindset that Gone with the Wind puts you in, but they don't want to make that pleasant. They want it to feel historically accurate for what that time period was truly like for, you know, the Hattie McDaniel character of Gone with the Wind. I, I thought that's such a cool connection to the movie and really does give you a vision of what what's trying to be done. I guess... Now that I've had a little bit of time to reflect, I do think the movie does have a couple weaknesses in that as character studies, I think the characters are sort of meant to play roles in the movie for the most part. And I was saying, you know, earlier in the podcast with Fleabag, I do think one of the things that can elevate something to truly top status is when the characters feel really rich. This is more of a conceptual movie. It's more about the twists. It's more about the ideas that they're putting together. Of course, Janelle Monae is incredible yes. in her role. And but it, feels, uh, but it is, is an idealized character. It's an idealized character. And she's one of the only ones that really feel yeah. more than one dimensional. You know, most of the other... I mean, Gibbery Sidibe is very dynamic. She's very fun, yes. the Dawn character. But Janelle Monae is the only one that, that you really have an understanding of like, okay, she has a family. You know, she's got a husband. She's got a daughter. She has this amazing career. She's very invested in academics. Um, she's specifically talking about the history and systemic issues of racism in America. So you really get what her character is doing compared to literally any other character that has like a sort of more central point in the movie. But like you said, I mean, th- this isn't a character study. It's just not. That's not what this movie is. This is yeah. a conceptual movie. It's an atmospheric movie. And more than anything else, it's, it's sure. creating tension. And it does it so effectively that it it makes you feel genuinely uncomfortable for the characters for very specific reasons. So like I was saying, where you spend 20 to 40 minutes of the movie in this antebellum era south watching the most horrifying aspects of slavery. And then you immediately move into a modern era and see this same looking woman interacting with white people who are being undercutting, who are being, you know, quietly racist towards her. And you're on the edge of your Mm -hmm. seat. You feel your fight or flight kick in. You feel like she's constantly under imminent threat. And it puts you in, in the shoes of navigating the world, I mean, I, I would never claim to understand what it's like to navigate the world as, you know, a woman of color, but it, it gives you a very strong sense of mm-hmm. that constant fear in the same way that, like, a woman walking around at night is constantly on high alert and hypervigilant because of 
a specific fear. And, you know, I think it just, it relates that to the audience so effectively. And that's really what I'm getting out of this movie. You know, it's the atmosphere, it's the intensity, and it's the fear that they so effectively give you. And this, I know this isn't directly a Jordan Peele film, but it really connects up to this Jordan Peele lineage of films from Get Out to us to this. And I'm just, I'm excited. I was actually seeing a thing about one of the big ideas of 21st century sort of media in general, stories in general, is that we've really turned not just to the identity story of the authenticity of one person's journey, but to exploring diversity and uh, intersectionality in media in a deep and complex way, to explore it in every possible genre, in every possible thing, and to reinvigorate old genres with diversity, inclusiveness, and intersectionality mattering. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very true. I think that is the state of sort of art today is very focused on this plurality. It's still a problem in that often these are done still from a perspective of for a a wide audience, for a white audience, for these things. There's still so many problems with these things, but more are being made. These issues are more being recognized. And like, hopefully we're going to keep getting deeper analyses of these things. Yeah. And so Jordan Peele's is one great line of that. That feels so fresh, modern, and interesting. Even Bridgerton has is is on some path towards this. And I mean, we're getting more like that. We have the Candyman remake coming out soon, which mm. I I know you hear remake, and I think a lot of people are assuming it's it's really not going to be that elevated. But I mean, Candyman. Ugh. Horror movie-wise is an interesting one to talk about because, of course, it's a horror classic and people love it. But really, when you, like, break down the actual elements of the story, Candyman is, like, a pretty stereotypical and and, and kind of racist storyline where, like, you have this white woman being stalked by this, like, beastly black man who's horribly murdering people. So it's 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 kind of rough if you really break it down conceptually, but it also came out, you know, in 1979 or 1980. And now that we're in a new time period, and it is ultimately a very interesting killer, you have this black female director with Jordan Peele producing, reinvigorating a conceptually interesting horror film from a new perspective. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Visually, all of the trailers I've seen look really stunning. And it, it definitely, from what I'm seeing, seems less problematic. Mm-hmm. Because he's, he's, at least in the trailers, what it feels like is like, it's less of this like stalking of a specific white woman or that white people need to fear the underprivileged, like, people of color dominated areas of their city. Cause that's really what Candyman is about is that these like high immigrant population areas that are heavily impoverished are like hyper dangerous to white women. And they will be like, they're more statistically likely to be attacked, murdered or raped in those areas. This feels more like it's going to center around gentrification of neighborhoods, like poor people being forced out into the cold and historical discovery of generational traumas. Uh, so I think it, I think it has the potential to be really interesting while still having this really engaging kind of slasher sort of ghostly killer like the original Candyman did, where he had his mm-hmm. hook, he had the bees, 
which was horrifying in the original movie where, yeah. you know, she's attacked. All the bees come out of his mouth. Those were real bees. Yeah, I when I found that out, that's very disturbing. But that's certainly what I remember of, like, the cover. Yeah. The bees are really, like, the iconic thing of uh, Candyman Put for me. live bees in that man's mouth. I... I, yeah, I don't. And I'm pretty sure. Sometimes I feel like the woman was allergic to bees, so it's like a he had like a hundred fucking live bees in his mouth, and the other person's allergic to like that. Just sounds like a terrible fucking idea for both people. Oh my <laughs> god, that movie's actually pretty pretty scary though. <laughs> yeah, Virginia Madsen, that was her name. It was bugging me. Tony Todd's the best though. Tony Todd is the one of my favorite horror actors in existence. He has the most oh nice amazing voice. Tony Todd's incredible. He was can- he was he was the Candyman. He was also in um, the Final Destination movies as an Undertaker, which I think is hilarious. But yeah, he's he's really good. You'd recognize his voice. He's voice acted tons and tons of cartoons, mm. like super popular cartoons and and movies and stuff. I don't think I have anything else particular to say about Annabellum. But yeah. it was it was a genuine surprise for me. Yeah. Like I was going into it expecting uh, a medium level movie, and it really well, shocked and me like, and made me like so glad. It's to strange too because I feel like most of the criticism, like most of the critics that I heard talking about it, I feel like they had said it was underwhelming. Like I I feel like I remember everything I was hearing about it was that it was an underwhelming movie, and it was like nowhere near up to par to the levels of like Get Out. And I just, I, I simply do not feel that way. I may have liked Get Out a little bit more, but overall, I think both of them are as conceptually interesting. Mm-hmm. And and both of them gave me the same feeling of tension and kind of fight or flight. So overall, maybe the characters were a little bit, you know, more fleshed out in Get Out, I guess. Yeah. I do think Get Out's the better movie. It has cinematography moments that are really amazing with the hypnotizing stuff. It has it has moments which elevate it. I don't know. I but... think Antebellum did too. That scene where she's walking away from that shed with the torch was that's true. Incredible. That's some looking. interesting things. It was yeah. stunning. It gave me the same kind of vibes that certain scenes in Hereditary and Midsummer gave me certain like cinematography choices in those films. It gave me a very similar feeling. For me, I liked it a lot better than Us, though, which I found to be uh, a confusing movie. I I mean, I liked Us a lot, and when I read up about it afterwards, I I understood what it was doing a lot more. And I think I think the issue is that like we weren't really alive during that Hands Across America movement, which is sort mm. of the like seminal moment in that film and it's what ties everything together so i think we were missing a big culturally impactful moment that that would have helped us understand it better but i mean really all all us is about in in like a very like concise sense is is that hands across america moment where you know you have all of these all of these people on one side of the fence holding hands across america to you know, uplift the impoverished people in the world, but they don't actually do anything. So their moment is, let's all hold hands across America to say that we're like gonna, you know, uplift the the poor and, and help the disenfranchised, and then they don't actually do anything. So it's it's a virtue signal moment. Right. But they leave these people 
to, you know, kind of fall apart in these disenfranchised neighborhoods. They don't do anything to assist them economically or with healthcare or education or anything to change their circumstances or help change, you know, the systemic issues in society. And that's, that's essentially what we're seeing in, in us between the, the doppelganger characters. You're supposed to see them as reflections of themselves because the people who are in these disenfranchised areas are the same as you, except they don't have the economic advantages that you had. Right. So without that understanding of that cultural moment, you, you really miss the connection. And I had to read up on it because, you know, A, we weren't alive when Hands Across America happened. But that's why you see at the very end of us, they're all holding hands after they've murdered everybody. They're holding mm-hmm. hands across America because it's essentially to show this does nothing. You're still fucking dead. Mm-hmm. We're on top of the pile now. We are the one percent. Um, so that's that's really what it is. Yeah. I'll outro, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, sorry for my rant about Candyman and us, but ultimately... No, that I think those are very relevant to the thing. I think that's exactly yeah. what we want to put in um, here. But I, I highly recommend watching Antebellum on, uh, on Amazon Prime. Me too. Thanks for watching Fans Labyrinth. You can find us on Twitter at FansLabPod. Uh, and we each have individual Twitters, which you can find by our names and through at FansLabsPod. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye.